Good afternoon. My name is Dr. Stephen Key from the University of California, Los Angeles, and this afternoon we're going to have a presentation on inferior vena cava filter retrieval, best practices from standard to complex. I'm joined on the podium this afternoon by Dr. Salazar from Mass General, Dr. Roshan from the University of Colorado, and Dr. Ahmed from the University of Chicago. And here are our disclosures. The learning objectives of this session are to identify patients at long-term risk of recurrent pulmonary embolism and accurately decide to retrieve an inferior vena cava filter or leave it implanted. To understand the risks associated with inferior vena cava filter retrieval and to understand the similarities and differences between commercially approved inferior vena cava filters and when to utilize each. We'll begin today with a talk from Dr. Salazar. Thank you very much. And as we are highlighting the issue of IVC filter retrieval, I just wanted to uh, emphasize the importance of patient awareness and physician collaboration so that we can improve our practice. I'm going to address some of the issues. Why are we having issues retrieving IVC filter that contributes to a, a difficult retrieval? So just to highlight the dramatic increase of the rate of IVC filter insertions in the last two decades, um, mostly also not only in the number, total numbers of devices, but also for prophylactic uh, indications. You can see that in the last two decades, we had a lot of filters placed in this country. Um, another side of the story then, how many of those filters actually get retrieved? And this is a large cohort published recently showing their IVC retrieval rates comparing 2010 and 2014. Now we're doing a little bit better and that's a great thing. And I think largely because of the restrictions in some of the uh, societal guidelines and also the FDA warnings towards the physician's community. So in 2010, we had one out of seven filters being retrieved. And in 2014, we have one out of four still. The rates are low. And uh, what we found from this large cohort is that older patients are less likely to have retrieval. And depending on the location of the patient also, it's an implication, it's a factor for retrieval. Now, this is the reason why we um, have some scare or some scrutiny over IVC filter insertions. Now, we don't practice medicine for the lawyers. We practice medicine for the patients. So we do need to understand where we stand with the issue of IVC filter, even with the lack of high quality data. So this is the document from the SIR guidelines um, that was done in 2011. And I think it was very helpful because we started looking at trackable events, including the issues that we see nowadays with IVC filter penetration, filter movement, fracture, and then also the issue of recurrent P in the setting of IVC filter. So it's very good for us to know this. And this is the extent of the problem. These are all filters at our institution that causing problems. Not all of them are retrievable, but uh, you can see fracture of the leg, filter migration to the heart, perforation, and thrombosis. This is a more recent report just showing and highlighting a case of appendicitis with a penetrating limb of a filter. And this is our own case at MGH, penetrating the duodenum and with the corresponding image of the um, endoscopy. Now, in 2014, we looked at the reportable events, and again, this is data that it's uh, coming from the MOD, and also it's voluntary reporting. So, but we do have an idea of the extent of the problem in terms of the retrievable filters. Of course, this paper shows more uh, retrievable filters complications being reported as compared to permanent filters, and I think that's uh, uh, an issue of the number of filters that we've been placing. Uh, in the last decade. And here, just an example of all these possible complications such as fracture, migration, 
limb embolization and tilting, penetration, IVC thrombus, and I, uh, VTEP. So the other issue is the, the indications for filters, and we do not know have uh, we do not have uh, good quality data. The only two randomized trials that look at the long-term outcomes of IVC filters, one done um, last two decades, pre-peak one that looked into the outcomes of pulmonary embolism, DVT, and mortality. While the permanent filters had some benefit in the PE prevention, there was a high incidence of DVT and no difference in mortality. Fast forward to 2015 when the, the same uh, group of investigators looked at the retrievable filters and looked at uh, outcomes at three and six months. There's no difference in IVC filter in terms of protection. And again, this is not really what we see in clinical practice because these patients are all on anticoagulation in both trials. That said, it's good to note that in this study protocol, the three-month follow-up visit uh, was done and a 90% retrieval rate. And again, just highlighting a little bit of the, the importance of having a follow-up clinic. Of course, this, of course, this wasn't a protocol study, but I think we can learn a little bit from it. Now, we don't live in fairy tale randomized trials. The clinical practice looks more like this uh, paper that is looking at the benefit of having an IVC filter in patients with multiple comorbidities, particular pulmonary embolism and cardiac uh, issues. And in this graph, you can see the, um, the benefit of having an IVC filter present in that patient population. And I think this is more of what we see, at least in our clinical practice. Um, we see this complex uh, number of patients, and moreover, also the prophylactic indications for filters. So why are we having this problem? I think there's three major issues. The indications, there's some variation in the guidelines. We all know this, um, uh, particularly when it comes to prophylactic indications. The other issue is that some of the temporary filters do stay permanently, and what, is the, what are the patient-related factors that contribute to that, and who should decide when the filter should come out or not? So I think we're not really like 100% on top of it. And the last, uh, but not the least, is we all know that uh, prolonged dwell times can lead to difficult retrieval and, and, and lead for complications to, um, to the inferior vena cava. So let's look a little bit on the indications briefly. We do know we have a discrepancy, or not discrepancy, but a difference in guidelines from the SIR and American College of Chest Physicians, particularly when it comes to prophylactic filters. We do know retrieval filters are effective in preventing PES permanent. But we also know that from the literature that there is poor compliance with guidelines depending on who's ordering the filter. So it's very important that we get involved in this early on. And this is just to show the difference in the major, one of the most used guidelines, in my opinion, the ACCP, where there is an absolute indication for IVC filter when there's a contraindication for anticoagulation. The same thing with the absolute indications for SIR. But when you look at the SIR indications, there are prophylactic indications to the filter. And this is uh, largely in pre uh, operative setting or trauma patients. So what are the predictors of non-retrieval? So we do have some data on that. We already talked about age, malignancy, acute bleeding, PE, DVT, post-filter post anticoagulation. They're all related to uh, having a chance of a, a filter becoming permanent. Now, in terms of technical factors, I think this is a plus or minus for me because if you have a center of excellence that is performing complex and retrieval techniques, perhaps that's not much of the problem. And we're gonna talk about this in the next couple of uh, presentations. This is very briefly to show the difference, and this is our own data from the IVC clinic, showing that prophylactic filters are, are significantly more, statistically more uh, removed than other indications, such as absolute and relative. And again, age and cancer presenting as factors for non-retrieval. 
But when we look at the reasons for conversion, there's all sorts of things, uh, but we just wanted to show here the short life expectancy plays a role in the decision anticoagulation contraindication, a continued anticoagulation contraindication, and then immobility and chronic thrombosis. Sometimes we decide to leave it in. Complications are, our data shows 8% complications, all sorts of things, but including thrombosis and lateral tilt. And this is, uh, again, predictors of non-retrieval, pretty much consistent with the rest of the literature, malignancy, age, and VT, and, on, and the chart showing the, the filters that became permanent and the filters that um, could be retrieved and were retrieved in uh, our follow-up. So what are the solutions for retrieval uh, practices? Well, we all know that we have to reliably track our patients in follow-up so that we understand whether those filters should become permanent or if we should remove it as soon as possible so that we don't have a prolonged dwell time, which we already know is associated with complications. In order to do so, I think quality improvement methods uh, are very helpful in this setting. We can apply them. We can actually, if you're in a teaching institution, have your fellows involved. These are sort of ACGME requirements for, um, for training. And also, what we do a lot at our practice is focusing on patient and physician engagement. This is one of the examples. We put this 10 years ago, uh, eight years ago, a notation in the chart so that everybody sees the patient has an IVC filter. So every time a patient goes into consultation, we ask the clinicians to reach out to us so that we can set up a clinic appointment. And we have seen significant improvement on the filters retrieved per month and also on the time, on the dwell times, which I think is the key here when we're talking of, of complex retrieval rates. So we went from 240 days to 150. We continue to do different process improvement interventions, the last one being this bracelet, which is basically alluding to the, the patient carries that, and then the patient himself is reminded to call the clinic. So we're focusing more on patient interventions at this point, as opposed to clinician and education alone. And these are the different cycles of PDSA. We also implemented a PA clinic, et cetera, but I think the most uh, effective ones were when we focus on the physician and the patients. So what is the initial evaluation before filtered retrieval? Well, first of all, follow up on the patients. Second of all, deciding anticoagulation. Do we have a contraindication? Is, is the patient gonna go for surgery still? So all those things are discussed in the clinical appointment. And of course, this is a multidisciplinary-based decision. We also have to speak to the other physicians to see if, if this is real indication for retrieval. In addition to that, uh, dwell times and, and some, some clinical uh, issues with uh, perforation and complications of IVC filter also should be looked at. At our practice, we do have a lower extremity ultrasound if patient is not anticoagulated to make sure patient does not have a DVT. And most of those patients are going to have some cross-sectional imaging. I know that some practices order x-rays to see more or less the position of the filter. Regardless of what you do, I think all the things that we do in the clinic is to predict whether a filter is going to be a complicated retrieval or not. In terms of optimal timing of retrieval, some modeling studies show that it's better to retrieve it within 90 days of implantation, but of course each practice is different, each patient population is different. Now we do find in some studies that there's a benefit in retrieving up to 40, uh, 54 days. This is our own data, and again, it's very local. It's, it's very different than other practices. We, we looked into the um, use of advanced retrieval techniques, and when did that happen in terms of, uh, in relationship to the dwell time. And what we found is that a significant difference of techniques when it comes to 110 days. So patients who have the filter more than 110 days, they're more likely to require an advanced 
technique. And I think depending on your practice, this is pretty much what you see, a prolonged dwell time. Another way of looking at the data is the position of the filter and predicting if you are gonna have to use a removal, uh, an advanced removal technique, and tilting I think is the most commonly seen. Very briefly, because we're gonna address this in a couple of uh, next talks, is type, the types of retrieval techniques, going from the simple first order techniques to the fourth orders, including endobronchial forceps and endovascular laser. This is more or less of our algorithm for retrieval. I think one of the things that's helpful from the clinic is to predict if there's gonna be a re an advanced retrieval technique utilized, then we can book the patient with anesthesia and have a little bit more support, and I think that's helpful. The section techniques we're gonna talk about a little later on. At our practice, we use a lot of the endobrochial forceps, the, the rigid one, and this is an example of, it's a little bit scary, but it does work, and we have a lot of experience with that. Um, and, and so this is what we're doing uh, more or less when we see that a filter is uh, basically difficult to retrieve. So in summary, we are better in terms of retrieval rate, all of us, United States, but still suboptimal. Um, the rate of placement of IVC filters still increasing, but we do have recommendations for removing as soon as the indication or the temporary indication is, is done. Retrieval rates or retrieval procedure can be technically challenging in about 50 to 60% of cases particularly if you are having a prolonged dwell times and um, degree of tilt of the filter. Moreover, uh, in terms of non-retrieval uh, predictors, we find that age malignancy, VTE, and patient factors are actually influencing the way that we look at those filters or retrieve those filters. However, more, need, more data is needed to determine the efficacy of IVC placement and also the long-term outcomes. And we do know that we have the preserved trial being done and hopefully we're gonna have data on that in terms of the complications in the long term. Despite of all of that, if you place a filter, you follow up on the patients and I do think and strongly believe that quality improvement uh, projects and processes are beneficial for us to improve our retrieval rates locally at our, in our institutions. Thank you. So Dr. Salazar, you mentioned the, the discrepancy between the uh, ACCP guidelines and the SIR. How, does, how do you, in the Mass General, deal with the issue of prophylactic placement of filters? We do have a, a high rate of prophylactic uh, filters, I mean, uh, from all different departments. Um, and I, I think that the issue is dealt using, we use the SIR guidelines, first of all. And second of all, I think it's really a multidisciplinary discussion. Uh, it's very important to have these conversations ahead of time. And um, again, you know, we do implement, particularly for the prophylactic indication, a very strict follow-up so we can remove them as soon as possible. So I think it's a combination of things. There's no one size fits all. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Dr. Roshan, would you like to proceed? Yes, thank you, Dr. Key. Uh, I will be presenting um, the um, IVC filters that are on the market right now, trying to be as inclusive as possible. These filters, uh, are deemed permanent, but some are, uh, mostly all of them can be retrieved uh, with advanced methods as Dr. Salazar was um, pertaining to. So all IVC filters are FDA approved for permanent implantation. And filter design is the challenge. There's a balance of opposites, stability versus mobility, durability versus uh, retrievability, but we need to maintain functionality in terms of the indications for these filters. As was stated, the current recommendations in planning physicians and clinicians are responsible for ongoing care of patients with retrievable IVC filters. So you need to consider retrieval as soon as protection from PE is no longer needed. And a 2014 update favored removal of about 29 to 54 days if the PE has passed. And as was stated, a preserved trial is actually being undergone looking at the uh, results uh, for safety, efficacy, and complications. 
In terms of difficult retrieval, things that we uh, see are embedded hooks, increased tilt and angles of some of the filters, penetration of the IVC, filter fracture, longer dwell times, which then would need advanced techniques, as well as uh, IVC filter and thrombus, despite patients who may be transferred to anticoagulation. Some advanced retrieval methods that were already discussed, a stiff wire technique, dual access, using a balloon to displace the filter in order to uh, retrieve it, loop snare techniques, sandwich techniques, use of the rigid forceps, which we utilize a lot in our practice, and also laser. Types of filters, as I discussed, there are permanent. Um, most of the FDA-approved filters are deemed permanent. Uh, we talk about some that are optional retrievable, and there are some in the market at this time that are convertible that we do not need to retrieve. Permanent filters uh, are typically used for patients who are immobile, who have a terminal diagnosis, older age, and poor health. Retrieval filters are removed when mechanical PE prophylaxis is no longer related. Most of these filters have a hook that can be retrieved fairly easily within an appropriate amount of time with a loop snare uh, or other device. Uh, this is actually a movie that shows a loop snare over the filter, all under fluoroscopy, engaging the hook, capturing, and then within the sheath it's collapsed and removed from the patient. Convertible filters uh, are placed when you have an intermediate between, it's intermediate between retrievable and permanent. The hook is captured and removed, the filter opens, and this endothelialization of the filter as well. The filter is actually converted to somewhat of an IVC stent. Now going through some of the commercially available filters, ALN, it's a retrievable filter. It has the hook that we can retrieve with a loop snare and a sheath. It was FDA approved in 2008, up to 28 millimeters. Most filters are actually approved up to that um, amount. European approval up to 32 millimeters. It's stainless steel, and its delivery is through a uh, severed French sheath. Um, these filters are typically um, deployed from an uh, internal jugular approach. Uh, this is another uh, representation of an ALM, which shows the longer legs that allow it to be centered a little bit easier within the uh, IVC. The Option Elite filter is retrievable. It's uh, FDA approved in 2009, approved up to 30 millimeters. The legs, however, open to 32 millimeters, therefore uh, allowing for a larger cava. Uh, it's a nitinol-based filter and a 6.5 French OD delivery length. Notice that this hook is actually welded within one construct of the filter, uh, which allows it, uh, the hook not to be straightened whenever it's actually difficult to remove. Another representation of the Option Elite, also within a patient fluoroscopically. The Trapeze and Optese filters. The Trapeze is a permanent device up to 30 millimeters of CAVA, uh, nitinol, six delivery uh, sheath, French delivery sheath, Symmetric same filter may be delivered from an IJ or uh, femoral approach. Uh, the Optis is the retrievable version where it has a hook also embedded within the filter. Um, the hook must face caudally and the retention barbs are oriented cranially. These filters, however, are difficult to retrieve. Uh, the, there's a lot of turbulent flow and we see a lot of these filters uh, have um, higher rates of fracture as well as clot that may be um, distributed. A lot of these uh, filters are also, also need dual access, sometimes a laser as well, and tel telescoping to actually remove them.
another representation of an Optis filter with the, um, uh, the caudally uh, face tines and barbs. Trapeze here as well as within the patient. The Greenfield filter, uh, one of our older filters, um, it is a permanent filter, however, it can be removed if the indication is no longer there or if there are actually fractures or any other problems that may pose uh, safety uh, harms to the patient. It's titanium and uh, uh, stainless steel over the wire, still in use. The maximum base diameter is 32 millimeters, curved hooks on the struts to prevent migration. This filter typically uh, lands pretty symmetric within the, within the cava. It's delivered through, however, a larger sheet than most of our um, commercially available filters, 12 French. This is the 12 French uh, stainless steel filter, uh, fluoroscopic or single shot image within a patient. 24 French stainless steel and the titanium. Comparison of all three put together. And this is the, um, just a note of how large the, um, the tips are because we can use several techniques, the endobronchial uh, forceps that could grab the tip and also some other methods such as loop snare techniques, typically with a larger sheet. The Gunther Tula filter is a retrievable filter, FDA approved in 2000 and, and U.S. approved up to 30 millimeters. It's a counterchrome alloy of cobalt, nitinol, uh, and others, delivery through a 7 French sheath. Um, the femoral delivery system is 8.5 French. Um, this filter has a hook. A lot of these filters, sometimes these filters can actually tilt up to 15 degrees, which could actually make it a little bit more difficult to uh, retrieve with the hook actually becoming embedded in the cava. Other examples of the Gunther Tulip. Uh, this is a select filter. Um, it has actually rounded tines, uh, secondary tines that can actually help with centering of the filter. FDA approved in 2007. Also, similar construct of the Gunther Tulip, delivered through a seven French sheet through the IJ and 8.5 French through the femoral approach. And this is an example, fluoroscopic image along with its um, model as well. Um, other filters as well, these are um, G2 filters uh, that are not on the market, but the Denali filter is on the market. It's actually retrievable, FDA approved in 2013, up to 28 millimeters, nitinol, 8.4 French delivery system. It also has a hook that can actually, um, it's welded and can be uh, retrieved from a loop snare technique. Uh, this is actually some images as well for the um, Denali filter. The Simon Nitinol was the first Nitinol product actually um, made. It's a permanent filter. Uh, we don't see these as much anymore. Um, however, it still can be retrieved with advanced techniques in the bronchial forceps and larger sheaths. The bird's nest is not one that we actually tend to retrieve. In fact, some people are actually looking for it to be retrieved from an advanced technique. But it can be used as a temporary filter during lysis. It was approved in 1989 up to 40 millimeters, stainless steel, and usually a larger delivery sheath of 12 French. We don't see a lot of these on, uh, in patients anymore. Um, Safe flow filter was FDA approved in 2009, up to 25 millimeters, a nitinol filter as well. Uh, smaller delivery sheath compared to others of six French in three different sizes, therefore we must size to the cava. And it's self-sittering, as you can see, it's conical shape, uh, excuse me, it's round shape that uh, will fit the, the filter as well, the cava. Other examples as described here. Our, the Venatech filter is a permanent filter. It does have con uh, convertible options, but the uh, Venatech uh, is a filter that has approximation of the cava. You don't have any problems with it tilting. It's FDA approved in 2001. Legs open to 35 millimeters. Uh, it's a non-ferromagnetic alloy. 
seven French delivery system, femoral IJ. Now, as I stated before, even though this filter is permanent, if there are any problems, it can be, we have seen it um, retrieved with advanced techniques. The Venatech family here on the far right is the convertible filter, which we will discuss in a second. Uh, low profile Venatech. And the convertible filters actually uh, use, uses a six French Amplex gooseneck snare to convert. You typically need a nine French or greater sheath. You engage the hook and the filter opens up and converts to relatively uh, an IVC stent. The bioconvertible filter, uh, it's a filter that we don't retrieve, but it's utilized in patients who you may have, uh, may have lost the follow-up. Uh, it has dissolvable sutures and, and converts just as the a convertible filter to an IV stent, IVC stent after approximately 60 days. And this is a, a representation of the BioSentry device. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Roshan. Just as an interesting discussion, there's a great deal of variety on the market here. Um, it's almost as many vehicles as you could choose from when you go to buy a car. How, how do you make a decision in your practice, and maybe I'll ask the others as well, as to which filters you use? Absolutely. Um, first, we want to have a discussion with the um, consulting physicians as well as uh, our patients as well. Things that actually make a indication for a permanent filter as opposed to an actual optional retrievable. Um, patient's life expectancy, as Dr. Salazar um, presented. Um, any uh, cancer risks and if the patient will have any um, uh, need for long-term anticoagulation and they won't be coming off. Patients who have fall risks of that, of that sort. These are a lot of filters, and I know institutions can't carry them all. Um, it's actually operator dependence, um, ease of um, deployment, uh, what your, uh, your lab and you are comfortable with. But I think it's very important to have uh, both types of filters, optional retrievable ones, as well as ones that are, deemed, that are permanent. Dr. Salazar, how do you deal with the issue in, in Mass General of there's only so much shelf space and there's only so many different filters you can have? Definitely, and I think nowadays there's even more um, restrictions in how many uh, devices we can have in our hospital. So it's a multi-faceted uh, sort of uh, way of looking at it. I think when we decide as a team, as a group with the intervention, just the technical aspect of it, we discuss it. And if there's a new uh, device in the market, we say, okay, let's try it. Let's make sure we follow up, uh, we get the data, and we get our own data. Um, it's very hard with all those different uh, sort of filters. We have to really make a decision about do we have a patient population where this would be helpful? And then again, consulting with the multidisciplinary teams that we work with. Uh, we basically have about four types in our shelf, and I think that's in combination with the vascular surgeons as well because we are embedded in this vascular center sort of multidisciplinary. So it's, uh, but it's very hard. You're right. right. And the, do you find that some uh, physicians have a favorite and they just stick with it. Yes, we definitely have, I mean, I have a favorite, I'm not going to disclose, and, and my colleague has a different favor, and then my other colleague. So I think as interventionalists, we do develop our own preferences, but I think it's important to keep in mind that there's developments and, and refinements of New of ones devices. all the time, yeah. And in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question that you asked, and specifically, you know, using your car analogy. You know, there's 12 different types of cars. You can only drive one or two, I think, you know? And so a little bit like what you're saying, Dr. Salazar, you, you gotta pick your favorite car, you know? Um, I think we're all at training institutions, so I think it's important for us to have a few different cars mm -hmm. and or different filters. And really for me, I think 
uh, I take a uh, approach of you know really want to do no harm to the patient. So taking an evidence-based approach, I try to find the filters. For me, again, won't disclose, but I try to find the filters that have the least likelihood of fracturing, embolizing things that I think would be very serious complications. Right. Um, for me, things like tilt uh, are not as important because I think with our advanced techniques, we're able to get those out. So that's just my two cents on that. On the Fair topic. enough. All right, well, with that said, um, we're going to kind of go over uh, some case examples of standard and complex IVC filter removals. Um, and I think it's important if we're going to talk about removal um, to first just briefly go over filter placement. Um, because I think a, a good filter placement will, you know, hopefully behoove a, a, a simpler standard filter removal. So, you know, we always first start out by getting a, um, really nice uh, IVC uh, cavagrams. And actually, in this, uh, it's not depicted in this example, but I would say the majority of the time we actually place a ruler under um, our patients um, to also identify the cava. And again, uh, this hopefully will... Um, uh, uh, lead to a nice placement. And so a couple things to consider. Uh, uh, as Dr. Roshan was mentioned, uh, most filters uh, uh, most filters that are conical shaped are approved for up to about 29 millimeters in size at, in order to be placed safely. You always want to identify the renal vein inflow. Again, that's typically around L2, but uh, if you're not able to reflux contrast into the uh, renal veins, you want to uh, look for that indentation of where that unopacified contrast is uh, washing in. You also want to make sure that there's no extensive amount of clot uh, that extends up to the renal veins. Otherwise, you're going to be placing a super renal filter. And then um, also, most importantly, you probably want to uh, place your catheter at least into the left iliac vein to um, uh, rule out any variant anatomy, specifically a duplicated IVC. You can also look at prior cross-sectional imaging to, to verify this. Again, for me, I always take magnified spot images after um, placement of a filter. Again, this is very important because uh, at the time of retrieval, you're going to want to potentially uh, go back to these images to document integrity of the filter. Um, again, it'll serve as your reference when you're, when you're removing it. So um, with that said, let's go over you know, um, the steps of a basic filter removal. Again, um, everybody's going to do this a little bit differently, but for me, um, I always, again, start with spot magnification images, again, to document the integrity of that filter. There was a recent pen paper that actually um, showed this, that uh, the fluoroscopy is going to be much more accurate at detecting these small uh, fractures than, than a, than a pre-procedure CT will be. Um, and then we start with a, a repeat cavogram. Again, we want to make sure it's safe to take the filter out, that make sure that there's no clot, uh, identify any potential filter-related complications that uh, may uh, prohibit standard retrieval and, and may, may want to make you think about bringing the patient back for a complex retrieval. So as far as standard retrieval goes, everybody has a different way that they're going to do this. I make my own kind of homemade set uh, for the most part. I start with a, a 12 French 40-centimeter cook uh, flexor sheath. Uh, and then plus or minus, uh, I'll uh, place a nine French cook coaxial 55 centimeter sheet. My snare of choice is the trilobe merit end snare. Um, again, everybody's gonna do this a little bit differently. Um, again, for me, uh, very important, I think, uh, even for simple filter retrievals to really magnify uh, and obtain spot images uh, while you're doing your retrieval. Again, to uh, these tines on the filters um, can be very uh, delicate or very thin, and it's very uh, important to make sure that you're not bending or, or doing something that, um, uh, obviously something uh, that's bad. Um, so again, those are the pictures showing the uh, kind of a standard filter retrieval. Here's kind of a cine example uh, of that. Um, here's a, a gooseneck snare going around uh, a Gunther tulip here and you kind of bring it up to that hook. 
uh, and then you bring down the uh, 9 French uh, 55 centimeter followed by the 12 French 40 there. And you can see how actually the filter, this is a Gunther tulip, is starting to bend. And the, really the, the, the resistance point here is actually at the filter legs where the uh, legs like to get incorporated. So then you bring down the, 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 the 12 French to give you a little bit more uh, stability there. And you can see with that bending that even some of our you know, standard uh, filter um, uh, sheets, uh, retrieval sheets are, are a little bit flexible and we may benefit from kind of newer, stiffer um, uh, sheets for, for removal. And, and I believe uh, the Argon company is actually uh, coming out with that set. Uh, so just moving on, we're going to talk about a complex filter retrieval. Uh, this is a relatively what I would consider a more of a straightforward complex uh, retrieval, but uh, important to kind of go over some of the principles. Uh, as you can see here, this is a uh, conical-shaped filter that has uh, that exhibits multifocal strut penetration, um, kind of abutting the uh, uh, small bowel there. And you see uh, on the venogram here again similar findings of the multi-strut uh, penetration. And we actually, anticipating that this might be a difficult retrieval, uh, attempted a uh, triaxial tri system. So as you can see, the bottommost image, uh, part, the bottommost sheath there is your 9 French sheath, and then your 12 French sheath, and then we actually have a 16 French there in case we needed to escalate to some uh, advanced techniques. And despite usage of this triaxial system for additional support, we're unable to collapse uh, the filter due to filter strut incorporation. So basically, the, those filter legs are starting to get scarred in. Again, this is a Gunther Tulip filter, which is kind of known for potentially having this complication. And so, you know, your options here are to pull harder, which um, the hook on these filters tends to be uh, relatively weak. So that would probably likely straighten it out. So, um, for my practice, um, I have a, a low threshold to, to convert these patients to um, eczema laser or laser sheath uh, retrieval. Um, I think this works very well for uh, embedded uh, filter legs. And so as you can see here, we, we took out the, the two inner sheets, placed the laser sheath, and were able to successfully uh, laser this out um, using the laser sheath. Again, magnified spot images, making sure that you're uh, slowly kind of ablating that uh, tissue around, uh, around the legs, again, using laser for photoablation. This is kind of a cartoon graphic um, depicting what's going on here with laser. You can see that tissue that you actually cannot really see that well on the, uh, on the contrast venogram, but this is actually what's happening. So the laser, although it sounds scary, is actually not really anywhere close to the, uh, to the IVC wall. It's actually just cutting through that tissue there. And as you can see, just a uh, kind of a magnified cartoon image of the laser has this nice reinforced metal tip in addition to kind of the uh, laser electrodes there that are um, around there. And again, this is actually that filter uh, depicting that scar tissue that you really can't see on the, uh, the, on the venogram during your retrieval, but that you know that's there when you're, when you're retrieving it. Interesting. Um... Well, I, questions I would have for you are um, this retrieval set you were mentioning that uh, the Argon's bringing out. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so I actually had the um, opportunity to, to try the, the set out um, just a few weeks ago on a, what I would consider a quote-unquote standard filter retrieval. Um, and I think some of its advantages kind of compared to my own homemade set, for example, is uh, the outer sheath is really, really stiff. And I think... Um, that stiffness, as, as everybody probably on this panel knows, you know, uh, for even some of these standard retrievals, you, you know, you need that rigid, rigidity to kind of help kind of remove those, the final kind of um, where the legs are in, um, contacting the wall. So, yeah, we have sort of the principles that I teach my guys is you need to have almost equal force done and you have up and 
I'm about to show you a situation where that didn't occur. Um, how about yourself? What do you say? What do you use as your sort of standard kit off the shelf to get out filters? My standard shelf uh, uh, kit is the Cook uh, retrieval set. Um, but I do agree with uh, most filters that may be in a little bit longer. Right. Uh, I do see sometimes the, the sheath actually um, bending or telescoping or twisting, uh, sometimes even shearing, uh, which is very scary. So uh, we do need stiffer sheets, especially definitely for the advanced techniques. Right. But I think if we have something that is standard, that has a little stiffer, then I think there can be more of one used for a lot of the retrievals. So let's say you had a, a case that you had attempted, or maybe I always think of it, if someone like yourself has sent me a case and you couldn't get it out, then it's going to be difficult. I just, standard issue. What do you use then? What's your off-the-shelf beginning for that? Sure, for an advanced technique? Yeah. Uh, I go with a 16 French sheath. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, the 45 and, Cook, that uh, one? Actually, 45, and sometimes there's a 55 as well for yeah. some of those taller patients. So we like to have something that's in there so we don't have to be exchanging as much as possible. Right. Um, something that sometimes the endobronchial forceps is gonna go, are going to go through, the laser, just prepared for, uh, that way. Uh, noting that the sheath is actually large, we want to make sure that it's flushed or sometimes has a drip on it because it actually could, uh, could clot A lot off. of clot can develop. Um, yeah. And noting that this is an advanced uh, retrieval, making sure that the patient is comfortable so we don't hesitate to employ general anesthesia right. or anesthesia with these patients. Yeah, I'm going to go into some of that as well. One of the things you just mentioned as well is that when you're, I always warn my guys, that 16 French sheath, at the end of the case, it's very tempting to do a venogram to show that everything's fine, filters out, it all looks pretty. If you do the venogram with that 16 French sheath, you'll blow a load of clot down into the IVC. So I always put a straight flush catheter in to do my venogram at the end because I've had that problem a couple of times as well. So Dr. Salazar, yourself, is there anything in particular that you have that we haven't mentioned that's on the shelf? What do you like to go to? So I think, I mean, I have moved from, um, you know, standard technique, that's great. We all are successful doing it and we do have the kit. But when it comes to advance, I think uh, in the beginning I was a little bit more conservative and I was just trying to loop snare. And now I'm seriously just moving straight to fourth order techniques because I feel like, you know, it's more straightforward. The, the whole manipulation already causes thrombosis and you can even break the filter, right, right. on this oh, yeah. pull and through and intention. Legs turn upside down, all sorts of things. Yeah. So just on my personal experience, I, I actually was very hesitant to use the force. I was, this is crazy. <laughs> But it's not. Yeah, it right. is not, actually. You should really be cognizant of moving from first orders to fourth, depending on the patient. Yeah, I think the other thing that's happened with the forceps over the last, I suppose, four or five years is that they've become smaller. There's a company, remind me the name of the company? Uh, Lymel Medical. Lymel Medical, yes, that makes them. And so they're not as thick as they used to be. One of the problems that we had experienced at the beginning of our techniques is when we had the bigger forceps, they would go in through the sheath, no problem and you'd open them up, grab a hold of the top of the filter, but now this thing is so much fatter, because it's like a bird with a peanut in its mouth, <laughs> you couldn't get the sheath back over the top of it again. Right. That, thankfully, that's really almost gone away with that newer set of forceps. So now, if you can get a hold of the top of it, you can usually get the sheath down. I'm gonna show a case where that perhaps didn't happen as efficiently as it could have. So I'm gonna really show you some kind of difficult and more complex filters and you know, almost my worst case scenario. So, you know, we start with a bang. And so this is a true story. I walked in on a Monday morning, um, no warning. The fellow, my trainee, had met, consented, and prepared the case, did a good job. The patient was on the table when I walked in. The neck only was prepped. Everybody was ready, and all the staff were organized. The micropuncture needles were open and on the kit. 
the wires were open, and a simple cook retrieval kit was already ready, prepped, and, and organized, and everybody was wondering what I was waiting for. <laughs> the history of this patient, this was a 72-year-old lady who had a history of hypertension, diabetes, endometrial carcinoma, which had been treated and cured with a hysterectomy. She also had Wagner's granulomatosis and had been on oral steroids for about four years. She had had this IVC filter placed about four years previously, was on rivaroxaban. So why would we even bother to try and take this out? Well, at an outside hospital, she was seen for suprapubic pain four days prior to this admission. On that examination, she was found to have a duodenal perforation secondary to a limb of the filter going through the duodenum. She was then treated in ICU in the outside hospital for a few days for very severe bacteremia, quite sick, septic, recurrent lower extremity DVT on river oxaban and was offered a laparotomy to remove the filter that was going through her duodenum. She declined the option of a laparotomy and asked to be transferred to a higher center of care and she arrived into UCLA for this filter removal. This was, uh, I have some still images here. You can see the limbs of the filter here, reasonably good on this picture. Now you start to see that anterior limb heading right across the duodenum. And this was the patient in a, in a coronal reconstruction. Interestingly, at the base of her pelvis, you can see she has an abscess anterior to the bladder, an unusual location, but she had had a drop abscess from this hole that had occurred in her duodenum. Apologies for the darkness of this image. It's really there just to show you that I'm trying to get this filter into the sheath. It was complicated to get it in, but we eventually got the filter in the sheath, and I pushed the sheath down and pulled the filter up, and it was a 16 French 45 cook sheath, one of the top end stiff sheaths, and the, the sheath crumpled, and the filter jumped up about two or three centimeters, and the nurse that was standing next to me said, what did you do? Because the patient's blood pressure went from 140 over to 60 over, and so immediately, now remember, this woman is on the table. Her groins are not prepped. She still has her underwear on. She's awake with gentle, with light sedation. So we immediately pushed the panic button, got four units of O negative, got anesthesia to run in the room, took the lady's underwear off, prepped both groins, and got 14 millimeter atlas balloons up into the um, upper aspects of the comniliac vein very quickly because this woman was exsanguinating. And in fact, she had a whole in the right lateral wall of her inferior vena cava that I like to say you could drive a Volkswagen through. Um, quite, quite impressive. And so when you reduce the balloons and did a venogram, this is what you'd see, put the balloons back up and she'd stabilize. Anyway, the long and the short of it was we were able to get a wire from below across this torn cava up and snare it out the neck and then bring down stent grafts. We initially used two um, limb extenders and then finally a 26 millimeter diameter, 10 centimeter thoracic aortic stent graft in her inferior vena cava and managed to stabilize her and save her life. And you can see here that the stent graft's in place, the cave is wide open, and the filter is still there because we just pushed it to one side. Interestingly, there isn't that much blood in her abdomen. It was more shock than it was blood loss, really. Um, anyway, she stabilized. But what did I learn? Most of what I learned I already knew but I allowed outside factors to influence my decisions, basically like a poor airline pilot. Mm -hmm. I did get the plane on the ground safely, but what would I do if I was doing this case again tomorrow? When I walked in the room, I would have reviewed the information in much more detail, cancel the case, deal with everybody's anger and upsetness, talk to the family, and reschedule that patient with general anesthesia, blood, multiple devices, and obviously prep multiple sites. 
Would the cava still have ruptured? Probably, but I would have been much better prepared for it, and this situation would have been much more manageable. I could easily have lost that patient. Thankfully, it did not. So what are really bad filters? Well, the ones that we consider to be scary or most concerning are the non-conical filters, as the gentlemen before me were talking about the trapeze and the optis filter. Those are non-retrievable and they, well, one of them is retrievable, but if they've been in for a fairly long time, the cava tends to scar around those filters and they can be very difficult to get out. So we'll always worry about those ones. Filters that have um, an inferior vena cava that's thrombosed around it, even if it's a conical filter. If there's IV3 thrombosis, that's a dangerous, difficult filter. And then lastly, as was mentioned by Dr. Salazar, just patients who have a long dwell time. If I see a case that's over a couple of years in place, that's a very difficult situation. So in those cases, as I have learned, you need to plan for the worse. You need to realize that there's a failure rate anticipate the possibility that you may have to leave the filter behind and stent the inferior vena cava open and have a deep understanding of the techniques you might need to employ if the cava does tear. This is one of hundreds of cases that I've done and the only one in which a cava tore, but I still think about that case. Now, most of these really tough cases are still removed from the neck. Use a bigger sheath as we've discussed a few seconds ago, forceps, etc. What I would recommend is placing a wire from below into the bottom of the filter just as you're about to pull it out. And it's a standard technique I do now. I get six French access in the right groin, do a venogram, put a guide wire up into the base of the conical filter, and then I close it from above. And so now my Amplat super stiff wire comes out the neck with the wire. Those are in the really hard cases. And so if anything was to happen to the inferior vena cava, I have through and through access. And it's just a tip that most people don't talk about, and it's for those really hard ones. Perhaps your colleague has struggled for four hours and has sent you the case. And here is an example, as was mentioned by Dr. Ahmed before, of the bottom of a Cook uh, Gunther tulip filter that they can get incorporated into the wall and require advanced techniques. And as he mentioned, the endovenous laser technique can be useful for this. The image on the extreme right there shows you just the, where the small legs are incorporated into the wall of the cava. And I found those to be really quite tricky. And certainly, um, the doctors in Stanford wrote some very interesting papers about using laser to help with this particular problem. So can you try and pull too hard? Well, yes, you can. So this was another case of mine. This was a 56-year-old triathlete who developed dyspnea in January of 2012. He had an injured knee, wore a brace when he was running, got a DVT, and had a pulmonary embolism. He had his filter placed and a thrombectomy performed for his DVT. Everything was done fine there, but he developed back pain. He was now on anticoagulation, and he wanted this filter out. If you look closely, you'll see the posterior limb of the filter touches the anterior aspect of his vertebral body. And he could specifically say that prior to this filter, he had no back pain. With the filter, he had severe back pain, and he could almost point to where this thing was. So there was a reasonably good indication to take this filter out. It had been in about 10 to 12 months, I think, by the time we got to him. So difficult filter, it was tilted. We had to go loop snare through and through access. That didn't work. So eventually, we came down with a pair of forceps, got a hold of the top of the filter, slid the sheath down and pulled hard. Filter came out without any problems. The patient went home. He comes back two weeks later, complaining of abdominal pain. And as you can see on this two-week post-CT, his inferior vena cava is very abnormal. 
He's got a hematoma around the suprarenal aspect of his inferior vena cava, and in fact, the renal veins look like they're higher than they should be. So essentially, he intersuscepted his inferior vena cava up into itself. And you can see on the MR, there's a complete, almost membranous occlusion of the cava now where this inner lower cava came up into the upper cava. Uh, quite dramatic, and he was pretty symptomatic. So we did a venogram, and again, you can see very abnormal, very poor flow through this intersuscepted cava with collateralization around it, really very bad looking. We put a temporary filter in because we were worried about thrombus within this hematoma. There wasn't really any. We angioplastied him. He got a little better and his venogram at the end shows some flow through. Still a collateral, but some flow through. He goes home, comes back two weeks later, still in abdominal pain. Another venogram two weeks later. Again, you can see he's collateralizing through his kidney. His renal vein is abnormal, elevated. He still hasn't been sorted. So what I did in this situation was I put a balloon almost as like you were reducing an intersusception in a child's colon, put the balloon above the intersusception and pulled down and re- sort of de-intersuscepted the inferior vena cava back into position with a 24-millimeter atlas. And thankfully, in this situation, he got better. And he recovered and is doing very well long-term after this. But it was a, a very distressing situation, so you can pull too hard. My last two pieces of information basically are just techniques that we developed when I was up in Stanford and then some more work at UCLA. And One of the tricks we came across was this idea of putting a wire through and through the filter legs and then putting a snare around that wire and advancing the snare using the first wire to center the snare at the the area of the hook and almost put a little tension on that first wire and then throw the snare down over the filter. And that actually worked really well. Uh, We wrote this up and thought we'd solved all the problems for everybody in the future, but it it wasn't perfect. We had a couple of failures. The other technique that we developed was this idea of what we call the hangman technique. So the the images you're looking at on the left-hand side, this is a through-and-through wire through the body of the filter. What can happen when you pull on that wire to bring the filter up or to straighten it is, in fact, it tilts more. The fulcrum is too low, and the filter just shifts over and actually embeds itself even more and can get you into all sorts of problems and perhaps is best dealt with by a forceps. But the other technique we found is if you can get a wire around the neck of the filter, so above the body, below the hook, so-called in the neck, and get a wire around that area, when you pull on the wire, it will, in fact, take the hook away from the wall and straighten it up. And here's an example of that to finish. This is a Cook Select filter, which uh, had a tendency to tilt because it has a tendency to perforate. The more modern one doesn't do this nearly as much. But you can see that this filter has penetrated on the right lateral aspect and then has tilted with the hook embedded in the left side of the wall. We could not get at this with standard techniques. So what we did was took a sauce or a a reverse-seeking catheter and got it around the neck of that filter below the hook above the body and got a wire then through and through, snared the wire back up the 16th French sheath and were then able to center that hook get it into the filter. At this stage, we had to get another snare onto it, but now the hook is in the sheath and we can get the filter out, and it worked. So those are kind of the worst-case scenario cases. I didn't think it would be any value to show you cases that we did that went perfectly. Uh, Obviously, a couple of those cases did not go at all perfectly, Um, and I guess there's going to be a couple of questions, so I'll let you guys ask questions of that, perhaps. Yeah, Dr. Keith. Great cases, by the way. I mean, tremendous learning points, I think, for all of us that, that do these cases. You know, those are the things that we fear probably when we do these. So 
Um, the one thing that's going through my mind just watching those is, you know, what are the biggest takeaways? Like if, if somebody is watching this lecture yeah. and wanting to get involved in, you know, doing more complex filter retrievals, you know, what would you tell them? Well, I think the six P's, you know, poor planning precedes pathetic performance. You know, if you don't plan properly for these cases, you're going to get burnt. And that's the first case was really to illustrate that Probably the biggest single scare I've had in my 30-something years of doing this was, was what happened when that filter came up two centimeters in the Cava tour. And I could just you feel the hair in the back of your neck. And I thought that the situation was irretrievable. But we managed to get out of that with a, with a live, healthy patient who's still alive today. Why did that happen? Well, it happened because we didn't plan properly. And so you've got to take into consideration what are you dealing with, what, do you, what could you need, if you feel uncomfortable at the beginning of that case, and I did feel uncomfortable, I should have just said, I ain't proceeding, I want general anesthesia and blood, and get some more devices over to help me in case something like this occurred. Would the complications still have happened? Yes, but I would have been in a much better situation. So I think the first rule for cable filter removal is have a plan. And so I would say, say a simple standard filter removal technique Use your standard devices. If it doesn't work in 15, 30 minutes, move on to the next step. Don't stay with that for four hours like we used to do in the old days because now your radiation dose is really high and your exhaustion level is, is too high also. So have a standard set of techniques. If you don't feel comfortable moving from standard technique to advanced technique in that situation, stop the case, send the patient home. This is not a life-threatening illness and bring them back with anesthesia and blood products and the appropriate equipment. And I think that's the, that's the take-home message here. No, Dr. Salazar, you talked about the IVC filter uh, clinic that you mm -hmm. have. A lot of these patients are actually coming in uh, from referrals from outside institutions. We try to follow them in a virtual way or a uh, 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 clinic way. Um, as you stated, Dr. Key, preparation and planning is really important. A lot of these patients... Uh, we see uh, for advanced filter retrievals in our clinic to discuss. I mean, that's a method where we can sit down, discuss with the patients what we're going to do, all the risk factors, um, the benefits and risks of removing this, and allows us to sit back and also plan appropriately for this. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, unfortunately, in our profession, when patients are transferred into hospital, everyone expects that you're simply going to do them the next morning. Yeah. Right. You know, no surgeon operates that way. Right. You know, they have a day that they're going to operate on. They see the patient. The patient might wait for a day or two before the surgeon's ready to treat them. But we, for some reason, don't act the same way. And I think, you know, there are these situations where you just have to say, wait a second. Okay, yes, the patient's on the table ready to go, but that doesn't mean that it should be done. And, and or talk to the patient in clinic, like you've said, and said, I'm going to set you up for next Wednesday, and that gives you a few days to make sure your laser isn't being used by the cardiologists because it's pacemaker wire, you know, that type of thing. I think those are the lessons that I've really learned over the years. Um, and if I'm doing another case, that's what I do first of all. I look at the case, get as much information as I can, pick a day to do the case, and then proceed. I, have a, I think the cases were very interesting. I know this is like really high-end. Worst-case scenario. <laughs> you know, but I think we do see sometimes when we remove a filter, small perforations, and then the question is yeah, what to do. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the patients are not crashing. Even with standard techniques, yeah. you may have that. 
So what is your approach? I mean, we, we usually obviously observe the patient and maybe angioplasty the area and wait a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then the question is, when do we start anticoagulation? So all those things. So what, what is yeah. everybody's approach in terms of having a complication not quite like yours? Not Dr. as bad as that. Yeah, Dr. Roshan, what do you think? Sure. So um, have a balloon available mm -hmm. to um, go ahead and do a little prolonged inflation at uh, right. that point. Um, a lot of times, I mean, whenever we're retrieving these filters, an indication they're anticoagulated, so right. we don't stop it. So prolonged inflation, wait, be patient, yeah. assess the vitals, see if your anesthesia team is available, give everyone the heads, heads up, up yeah. um, that we get a lot, and, and then see and just monitor that patient accordingly. Uh, if we have that microperforation, then you want to monitor the patient a little bit longer in your post-procedure area, plus or minus uh, overnight uh, admits. Mm -hmm for observation, those are things that I would actually be right. considering. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, I would second that, Dr. Roshan. Uh, I think one, one major point is, like you started by saying, is if you're going to do these cases, I think you have to either have stent grafts or, or large balloons in the room, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's there's no deal on that. You know, you, ha you, have, to ha you have to be it's prepared for those almost situations. almost malpractice yeah. not to have that stuff right. ready. I agree. Yes. Um, but I think we've learned a lot about what would be essentially asymptomatic cable pseudoaneurysms. Mm -hmm. I think because the IVC is a low-pressure system, it's in, a, it's in a confined space. We're not you know, making retroperitoneal incisions. Um, and a lot of times these patients are anticoagulated. Um, I actually, for me, uh, I'm not terribly worried about them. I do. I have a very low threshold to angioplasty and prolonged mm -hmm. angioplasty because there's really no downside to that, I think. Um, and then I now, you know, I probably keep the majority of them overnight, again, just to monitor to make sure nothing happens. Um, but my experience has been that as long as they're asymptomatic, that mm -hmm. that's, there's really nothing to do. I would, I, I would highly, you know, I try not to stent patients because you just remove metal. Right. The last thing I want to do is place more right. metal in them. So that's my approach. And really the one time that I've seen a, a quote-unquote pseudoaneurysm be problematic, that patient was in 10 out of 10 pain immediately post-procedure. So I knew at that point there was something more you had to there do. Yeah, right. that we had to bring back and do something about. But the majority of them, I think, do, do uh, largely pretty well. I think another area that's worth discussing, certainly in, in our practice, we're moving more and more towards outpatient-based therapies. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're opening clinics all over the place and then putting interventional radiology in those clinics. So I, I, I recommend to my young guys who are in those clinics that if you can't get an IVC filter out with standard techniques, do not apply advanced techniques in that environment. It's just not appropriate. I mean, patients can't stay overnight. What are you going to do with them? So, you know, I think for people who are in the outpatient practice, and I know there's a lot of IR now being done in outpatient practices, I think if you have to go beyond standard techniques, maybe maybe a really simple pair of forceps, but nothing more complicated than that, I would bring the patient into hospital for further techniques. But would you still recommend IVC filter retrieval for all patients? The low, low, like low think, risk cases. I think I would. I think you know certainly if if I was ill and I, I had to have an IVC filter placed, I would make darn sure that filter was taken out below before six months because I've seen so many cable thromboses mm -hmm. and back pain and then duodenal perforations. I mean, you know, it's not as rare as people think. If we all got together as a society and said, "How many of you have seen a duodenal perforation?" Almost everybody's seen at least one, right. and that woman was extremely un unwell in ICU with fevers because of it. So, you know, I think that piece of metal in your body long term, I want to get it out, yeah. definitely. So, 
Okay, so we're going to finish up here. I'd like to thank Dr. Salazar, Dr. Roshan, and Dr. Ahmed, myself, Dr. Keith, for, uh, for being here today to talk to you all, and thank you all for listening. I'd especially like to thank Argonne Medical Devices for the educational grant support that made this whole discussion possible. Thank you all very much.